Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. I have a special announcement. I've created a premium subscription program for the podcast. Becoming a premium subscriber is how you can support the podcast so that I can continue to keep the show independent, ad-free, and sponsor-free, and also continue to bring you the interviews and special episodes that you love. By becoming a premium subscriber, you will get bonus content, early access, unreleased songs, virtual events, and much more. These things will only be available to premium subscribers, and it won't cost you much either, I promise. So please sign up at followyourdreampodcast.com slash premium. That's followyourdreampodcast.com slash premium. The link is also in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and for supporting us as a premium subscriber. Hi, this is Miles Copeland, and you're listening to Follow Your Dream Podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Now listen. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. I'm honored to have as my guest today, Stuart Copeland, the founder and drummer for The Police, one of the greatest bands of the rock era. They had so many hits, including Roxanne, Message in a Bottle, Walking on the Moon, and Every Breath You Take. He's a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and a seven-time Grammy winner. And Stewart is also a world-class composer for film, TV, video games, ballet, opera, and orchestral music. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, Stewart and I are going to do a song fest. We're actually going to do two song fests. Because in the first one, Stewart has picked out several of his favorite songs by other artists. And in the second one, he selected several of his own best works. We'll play them and we'll talk about them all. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, it's my reimagined version of Jimi Hendrix's Fire from the Made in New York album by my band Project Grand Slam. Why? Well, Stuart's a big Hendrix fan, just like me. So I thought that it worked. So Stuart Copeland, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Nice to be here with you. You know, I had your brother Miles on this podcast just a couple of weeks ago. I will tell you that he told me some great stories about what it was like at the beginning with the police. And one of the things that was remarkable to me was he said how much trouble it was getting you guys signed at first. And I said, that's crazy because you guys were world-class right from the beginning. 
So what was it like for you right at that time? Well, uh, in fact, it was easy to get me signed to AM Records because I was currently having a hit on my own Cryptone label under the name of Clark Kent. Uh, I was getting airplay. Well, I hadn't had a hit yet, but I was I was on the BBC One playlist, which meant that I've got to get this off. You know, I'd released it on my own label with Miles uh, in his empire. But as soon as it got on the BBC One playlist, then... Miles was in America at the time. I had to go down to A&M, who were just considering signing the police. Uh, we were just talking about it. And they picked me up right away, signed it, and had their version of the record in the stores by, you know, Monday next week. And uh, that was our first hit. In fact, the first time the three blonde heads of the police were on national television was as my backing band in Clark Kent. Uh, I'm glad you dragged that out of me. Uh, that that anecdote. That's a, that's one of my favorite brags in life. That old old Stingo who who achieved such amazing things for the police and uh, to whom I am so deeply indebted. Ha ha! I got that guy on TV. There you go. Because Clark Kent was a, a solo project. I played all the instruments myself, even the singing, if you can believe it. And somehow, just by this fluke, by total stroke of luck, got you know to the interest of, of Her Majesty, the BBC, and had a hit and was on top of the pops. But I didn't want to appear like a solo guy. I, I'm a band guy. So we were all in masks. That was the other thing is that it was a secret identity. Nobody, who's Clark Kent? Everyone was asking. What they didn't know is that it wasn't anybody at all. It was the drummer in that fake punk band, The Police. Isn't that funny? And, you know, this is a great story because now I know that Sting was your backing musician. The first time you guys were on. I put that guy on the map. I hired that guy. You made him what he is. I love that. Ah, totally. And I never miss an opportunity to tell him. Good for you. So listen, the other thing your brother told me was I asked him about the naming of the band as the police, because there was that story that I'm sure you've heard about. It had to do with your parents and your father with the CIA and the whole thing. He said, no, 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 no. That was not it. He said, ask Stuart. He'll tell you why he named the band The Police. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, that's an easy one. Free advertising on cars all over in every city in the world. That's exactly what he said. <laughs> and it was a time of hostility. Uh, I was I had been playing in a, a prog rock band, Old Wave, called Curved Air. And all of the groups of that had wonderful, nice names. You know, Oasis, and, and no, actually, no, that's later. But I mean, they had nice names, Caravan, Renaissance, and so on. And then, you know, The Clash came out, and The Sex Pistols, and The Damned, and, you know, Evil Edna's Horror Toilet, and hostile band names were the thing. And so I figured um, The Police was a good hostile kind of name. I wanted to call it, uh, if I may be forgiven, The Police, um, <laughs> FTP. Um, I was persuaded out of that. But it turns out to be a crap name, not a good name. You know, um, why do you say that? Well, Fish owned the name Fish. We don't own the word police. If you Google police, you get the Brooklyn Police Department, and we don't own that word. It doesn't belong to us. You know, the logo, the actual graphic, the art, we can own that. But I should have come up with some word not in the English or co combination not in the English language. I wouldn't lose any sleep over this, Stuart, okay? Everybody knows who the police is. Yeah, it kind of worked out. Yeah, it really did. So, I mean, at that time, way back then, 
you're playing this mixture of kind of punk and reggae. Was that your idea? How did that come about? I wouldn't dignify it as an idea. It was just an instinctive thing that we fell into. Another story is that, um, you know, I was a DJ at, at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, KLX, you know, playing the boss songs on the boss radio station that my boss told me to play. And uh, I was the guy doing imports. And so I got Bob Marley. And um, as soon as I heard uh, Lively Up Yourself, I was all over that. What the hell is that drummer doing? Wait a minute. Wait, he's got the kick and the snare and the same on beat three. And then, not, you know, so I very quickly analyzed and just was fascinated by it. And I was kind of into it. 1976 into 1977, New Year's Eve, Sting threw a party. And I lent him my stereo and my record collection. And that's when, I'm not sure if he had heard, he must have heard The Israelites by Desmond Decker and other, you know, he'd heard Ubla Di, Ubla Da, I guess, you know. But this was the first time I think he heard really serious hardcore reggae. And it struck, and then the next rehearsal, without any discussion, that's kind of, we were just exploring that rhythmic world. And for bass players and for drummers, it's a, it's a totally different world. 100%. It's all built on the bass line and the drum part is back to front. Just, you know, in our punk world, it was just a whole new playground for us. And the fact that we got it wrong was what was right about it. What do you mean by that? Well, we didn't play it the way Bob Marley did. You know, no, you, um, you put your own spin on it. We did our own screwed up version of it. But there was an I had another secret weapon, though, the secret sauce, which was that it just so happens that my upbringing in the Middle East, surrounded by Arabic music, provided me with a deeper understanding in my DNA of that rhythm. Because the baladi music, the baladi rhythm that were to which they danced the debki has the same rhythmic structure as reggae, which is an emphasis on the third beat of the bar. You hide one. There's no one. Two, three, four, two, three, four. And that's very similar. So I had that kind of landing on beat three was just real natural, real. It's in my DNA. I'd grown up with it. And so when it came to getting into reggae, I could just sit right in that pocket, easy peasy. Whereas all my buddies and all the other groups who around then, and this is another story of how punk discovered reggae, or dub rather, which is because there's no such thing as chill punk, but hostile dub is still angry, but chill. And so all these skinny white London musicians, The Clash among others, were figuring out this rhythm, and they found it quite difficult because it was so back to front. That's just not what the drum set's designed for. But I think I'd have to give Clash credit for being the first to venture out on record with a skinny white English version of punk. Well, the fact that you guys put the reggae and the punk together at first, it was mind-blowing, okay? And to your credit, that was just a wonderful combination. Yeah, well, and fun to play, too. I can imagine. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. I've just released a new EP called The Singles Project that features five of my new songs. I'm pleased to say that the recording has gotten wonderful reviews. It's been called amazing 
magical, fabulously enticing, a home run, and a sonic toward the force. How about that? The songs speak to the ups and downs of life, from the blissful, joyous Saturday morning to the darker commentary of like never before and the ship. Several reviewers said the songs show me exposed and vulnerable. And you know what? They're probably right. See for yourself. The songs can be streamed on Spotify and all the other streaming services. And you can check out all of my music at the Project Grand Slam website. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. All right, listen, we're going to run out of time here if I don't get to this quickly. And that is, I want to do that first of our song fest. Now, I asked you to pick out some songs. And what I had in mind was you picking out songs of your own. But what came back to me was you picked out some songs that you love of other artists, which I really dig. So let's go through that. And you picked out some artists. And I'm going to give you an alternative version of each of the artists that you picked out and see how you feel about that. So the first one that you picked out was a Hendrix song from his second album, Axis Bold as Love, Spanish Castle Magic. If we travel by my dragonfly, no, it's not in Spain, but all the same, you know it's a good name, and the wind's just right. Tell me what you like about that one. It's all about the drums. And one of the strange twists of fate is that the best, in my opinion, tearaway front runner of all rock drummers, including Bonham, including everybody, is Mitch Mitchell. But who noticed? He was playing behind Jimi Hendrix, right. who was just, in one sense, so loud that you couldn't hear anything on stage. But those three double Marshall 200-watt stacks and the drums, they didn't know how to mic them up in those days and PAs were crap. So he's like this undiscovered genius. But he he came before Ginger Baker and, you know, quite a long time before John Bonham and uh, a generation before me. You know, I, I was probably 16 when I heard Jimi Hendrix and the drums just blew me away. You know, because up to that point, it was like just a backbeat you know, as a, as a part of a pop song, but with Jimi Hendrix on guitar and Mitch Mitchell on drums, that was a life-changing musical experience. You know, it's interesting because you don't hear Mitch Mitchell spoken about in lofty terms like this, okay? You're one of his biggest fans. What was it about his playing that just knocked you out? The chops. I don't care about song. I don't care about lyrics. I don't care about the top line. I'm all about how many drums you can bang in the shortest <laughs> amount of time. And that guy, well, he had a, even though I make a joke out of being allergic to jazz, he was the only rock drummer who could truly claim to be a jazz musician. I mean, Ginger Baker, Charlie Watts, both claimed to be, oh, I'm a jazz musician, really. Are you kidding? 
you're a rolling stone, you know. But Mitch Mitchell, it was true. He really did have that light effervescent, and he had just he was fast. He had chops out to here. He could pick up on Jimi Hendrix's guitar riffs and turn upside down rhythms. He just had it all for me as a kid. Well, listen, I can't disagree. They were an unbelievable band. He was the Buddy Rich of rock music. Uh huh. Well, we're going to talk about him next. But you know, for me, the first time that I heard Hendrix was obviously that first album. Are you experienced? And that first track, when Purple Haze came on, I'm a teenager at the time. I'm a bass player. But that blew my mind and everybody else's mind at the same time. You know, well, Noel Redding was also an unsung hero, too. Uh, he was mostly playing lines that, that Jimi Hendrix told him to play. But he was pretty good. And he's sort of maligned because he had a very muffled sound. It right. was all bass, whereas anything above the navel, that's Jimi Hendrix. And from the pants down, that's Noel Redding. And <laughs> people don't pick up on it. But he also was a hero. Well, listen, they were an unbelievable band. And... uh what can you say? I mean, you know, Hendrix was Hendrix. And just to be in the band with that guy must have been something. Did you ever have a chance? Well, I guess you were too young at the time as well to play with him, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I saw him, you know, straight from back from Beirut. I was in London and uh, he played at the Seville Theater and I saw it. And it was my first professional band. I played in bands at the American Beach Club in Beirut, but I'd never seen a real professional band on a real stage and that was the first experience so it was Jimi hendrix that's amazing all right you just mentioned beirut i mean you don't think of beirut and rock music and the whole thing as going together what was it like for you there well i felt underprivileged at the time i now realize the richness of the cultural immersion and what i learned from it and how enriching it was to be there in that culture but at the time, we didn't have TV. And when TV did arrive, it was in black and white and in French or Arabic. And I grew up watching the Bonanza and the Virginian in Arabic. And I remember hearing them in English for the first time. And like the voices were all wrong. You know, Haas. Haas Cartwright was speaking Arabic, huh? Well, he was in Arabic and he had a southern kind of Palestinian guttural sort of macho <laughs> sound. And in English, he had this high squeaky voice. What's up with that? You know, Haas sounded much better in Arabic. Okay, I'll take your word for it. I never heard him doing that one. Some of the translations were weird. You know, the guy comes in and you can hear, and sometimes there were subtitles. Hey, look, it's the kid. And you see the subtitles say, voila, c'est le garçon, which doesn't, you know, for you non-Spanish speakers, look, there's the boy. You know, what's amazing, for people in the United States, they don't realize how our culture has translated around the world. because. All the television, all the movies that people saw all around the world up until recently was all American or maybe English, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, 
you've just uh, inspired another rant here, so buckle up. Uh -oh. um, the aspect of American culture, beyond our movies, which gets translated and so on, is our music. American music is the most distinctive feature of our culture. The most, you know, everybody's got movies, everybody's got books, but American music, Europe didn't come up with that. America did, and that's black culture. And um, the backbeat. And the backbeat is the most distinctive feature of the most distinctive feature, which is black cultural music, you know, are, and that's everything from country to jazz to blues to everything derives from that backbeat. 100%. And that backbeat was invented by the man who invented the bass drum pedal, named D.D. D. Chandler. In 1898, he invented all the music that we listened to because he took what was once three players, a bass drum guy, a cymbal guy, and a snare drum guy, and he invented the bass drum pedal, which meant that one guy could do all three jobs, fire two musicians. But with one guy doing the kick and the snare instead of two guys, it became a much more of an organic oneness of rhythm. And so that kick, snare, kick, snare, the back beat, mm, ba, ba, da, that has dominated music. And to this day, uh, more than 100 years later, Dee Dee Chandler, remember that name. All right, D.D. Chandler. You know, I've had a lot of musicians from England during that British invasion era on this podcast. Yeah, they all come from D.D. Chandler. Well, you're right. And what they all did was they all listened to American black music, the blues in particular, that we overlooked in America for so long. They took it back to England. They redid it. They gave it back to us. And then it became a hit. Yeah, yeah. It's something that I'm very proud of. You know, my instrument was invented by a black man. The music that I play on it derives from black culture. And I'm a I I'm I'm proud of to be an American because of that aspect of our culture. All of American culture can be proud of what came out of New Orleans. I'm with you on all of this. All right, we're gonna go to the second song. You picked out a Motown song, Dancing in the Street, Martha and the Vandellas. Tell me a little bit about why you chose that one. Well, I missed R&B as a kid because of Jimi Hendrix and James Brown. Well, James Brown was R&B, but not that kind of glittery suit kind of R&B. So I missed it. But when I did this tour that I'm doing now, the police deranged for orchestra. The only way I could replace Sting is with three soul sisters on the mic, which was just kind of a practical choice. But when I heard our three, you know, Amy, Ashley, and Carmel, it's like the police song sung by the Supremes. And so I'm kind of coming to the end of this run of this tour, and I'm considering the next tour to be Motown deranged for orchestra, because I am so in love with that instrument. The three women on the mic is just so amazing. 
And, you know, the four tops as well. Okay, okay, you know, the male versions are cool too. But that instrument of three or four voices on the mic is just a wonderful thing. And so this song here was the one that did penetrate living over in summer in boarding school in Somerset, England. This one here did hit. You know, what's interesting, when I took a look behind the scenes at this particular song, Dancing in the Street, of course, it was done by the Funk Brothers, you know, with Jim Jamerson on the bass. Yes, that rhythm section. And Marvin Gaye played the drums on that one. Whoa, I didn't know that. I knew about him just being this incredible arranger. And by the way, I only found this out in the last few years. I said, I'm a recent convert to all this kind of music, which just, I just missed it as a kid. It was too mainstream. Wow. It was like, um, I was more into angry, burned down the building music. And that was all what was on, you know, popular radio, which was as a kid, as an angry teenager, wasn't relevant. But now as an adult, I look back with great reverence on these artists. Well, I'll give you another tidbit. And that is my favorite song of that era by the same people was Marvin Gaye's version of Hitchhike. I'm going to Chicago. Okay, another great Motown song, which the Stones later covered. But guess what? He had three background singers on that record. Who were they? Martha and the Vandellas. What do you know? Uh, by the way, I have dipped my toe into it. There may be re good reasons for me not to do that tour, by the way. So it's just, you know, there's this concept of cultural appropriation. But I did get into an orchestral, funky orchestral arrangement of Dancing in the Streets. Ah, oh, I, I hope I get a chance to play it one day. That would be something. All right. The third one that you picked, it was interesting. You picked a Buddy Rich song, Sister Sadie, which is from 1966. Tell me a little bit about how you feel about Buddy Rich and his play. Well, my daddy was a musician before he was a CIA man. And when he was a CIA man installing and propping up dictators in the Middle East, he did have his trumpet. In fact, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I've still got it. Uh, here it is. Want to see it? There it there is. There you go. So I'm the youngest kid, and he tried to inspire his children to be musicians. It didn't take miles didn't get it. He was left to listen to it, but not to play it. Brother Ian was more into his motorcycle and chasing girls. You know, finally the last kid comes along and starts making music, mainly banging stuff. And so he immediately started ramming jazz down my throat. Wrong jazz, you know, white big band jazz. And most of it kind of went straight past, except for Buddy Rich. And since I was interested in drums, there has never been. He, even more than, than Mitch Mitchell, he is at the top. I'm not a particular fan of that style of music, but nobody has played drums like that. Okay, okay, 
Joey Jordison and Slipknot, okay, comes pretty close, you know, in terms of chops. Uh, you know, let's let's call Buddy Rich the Joey Jordison of his day. I'll tell you the one image that I continue to have about Buddy Rich, who was an extraordinary drummer, he would go on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He'd be sitting on the couch. He'd have, you know, his casual clothes on. And all of a sudden, after 10 minutes of talking, Johnny would say, hey, buddy, you want to go play something? No warm up, no nothing. Get behind the drums. And he just knocked the crap out of those drums. Unbelievable. It's a gift of God. Yes. He got a gift like, you know, none of us have been granted. And he's he stands out among all. Well, there's another track from pretty close to that era that I loved by him called Bugle Call Rag. But I mean, that one he really took off on, whereas on Sister Sadie, which was one of his pieces that you picked, I mean, it's an ensemble piece. It's He wasn't showing off his chops on that one as much. Oh, yes, he was. Hitting all those hits, you got to have chops to hit all those hits. And he knows where they are. He's the only guy in the bandstand not reading music. He just knows where they are. They run it down a couple times. Now, okay, that's where the hits are. He, not only has he got them, He's playing with them. He's toying with. He hits this one, dodge that one because he, you know, just he is so all over it. He just owns that rhythm and kicks it. Okay, I'm going to tell you a little Buddy Rich story that you'll like. Gary Lewis of Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Okay, father was Jerry Lewis. When he was learning to play the drums, a friend of his father's used to come over the house all the time. Jerry Lewis played drums. Jerry played, but I'm saying when his son was learning. He had a friend that came over all the time, gave him free lessons for two years. Guess who it was? Buddy Rich. What do you know? He told that story on the podcast. He was probably a crabby drum teacher. <laughs> he was pretty good, he said. But I would have listened. All right. Okay, you forced me to tell my Buddy Rich story. All right, go ahead. Which I got two. One, there is no other drummer on the planet who has given an autograph to Buddy Rich. And it was for his daughter, but we were at the Grammys and there's, whoa, there's Buddy Rich. And he's walking this way. He's looking in my, gen he's walk. he's, Buddy Rich is speaking to me. He's holding a piece of, he's asking me for an autograph. I can't believe this is happening. It was for his daughter who was standing bashfully behind him, Kathy. Fabulous. But still, I don't care if it was for Kathy. I gave Buddy Rich an autograph, okay? The other one was when I went, I took my dad to see Buddy Rich playing Ronnie Scott in London, and they're the same vintage. And so the, pretty soon they're talking about band leaders that they worked for, clubs that they got kicked out of, and, you know, from the old days. Meanwhile, Buddy's band are all these Berkeley graduates who are all my people. Right. And uh, so my father's looking over at me signing autographs for Buddy's band, and that's when, in my father's eyes, I made it. <laughs> Never mind Shea Stadium. Ronnie Scott's was much more important. It was the Buddy Rich Band that did it. I love that. Love it. Hi, everybody. Just a quick reminder to please sign up to become a premium subscriber to the podcast. By doing so, 
You'll support the podcast and help us to remain independent, ad-free, and sponsor-free. And you'll get a whole bunch of extra benefits. Just go to followyourdreampodcast.com slash premium. Thanks so much. All right, listen, we just finished the first song fest. Let's go to the second one because I want people to hear some of your stuff. And the first thing that you picked out was your first single by the police back in October of 1978, Can't Stand Losing You. about that one well it was i'm not sure whether it was can't stand losing you or roxanne or so lonely but one of those three was the first times we tried i think it was probably roxanne but can't stand losing you was the same formula of turning the rhythm bass backwards and playing the downbeat where the upbeat should be and it just kind of worked and that's this is the track that kind of this is my of those three this is my favorite the one that took us on our uh, journey not so much to fame and fortune, but to our unique, you know, our own individual sound. What was the top of the the mountain for you with the police? Uh, headlining at the Marquee. Oh no, that that was in in our minds in 1977. By the way, I am forced to say this is all in my book, which is coming out at the end of the month. Um, my diaries from that period of the starving years, and I've got every gig we played, every, how much we got paid how many people were there, how well we did. I gave us reviews. And um, all these anecdotes of that starving period, I found these diaries and they all come flooding back. How long was your starving period? About two years. Really? And the miracle is that we stuck together. And Sting and I were at it for about a year before we ran into Andy. Starving. And we didn't have Roxanne. We didn't have Message in a Bottle or, or Every Breath You Take. We didn't have any of those Sting songs. We had my crap songs of utility, which were written to fit into the punk scene. You know, I knew three chords. Okay, add G in there. I'm not sure if I could play it, but I, you know. And uh, and they're basically bass lines with yelling. And how Sting stayed in the band. How did I keep hold of Sting with, you know, with, without the great material? And playing in those punk clubs. Well, the reason was because it was the only scene happening and it was a do-it-yourself thing. And he liked the fact that we were our masters of our own destiny. But Andy, that's an even greater miracle. He was like this triple scale guitarist playing top flight sessions. And he threw it all away to join this fake punk band that was getting nowhere, that was starving, dead in the water. But as he said to me on the day, Look, Stuart, you and that bass player, you got something, uh, but you need me in the band and I accept. Now, he hates it when I tell that story, but it's true. And that's who Andy is. He is a straight ahead, you know, no messing around, no frills, cut to the chase, very direct man. And um, recently I did ask him, dude, what were you thinking? 
joining this fake punk band. And he said, uh, I don't know, mate. I should have stuck with Neil Sedaka. That's great. By the way, your brother Miles told me a story about your most important gig was to four people, okay? Because one of the four was a disc jockey from MIT Radio, and he got on top of Roxanne. And according to Miles, that's what kind of broke the band. Yeah, Poughkeepsie, 1978. And uh, there was a few of those. There was The Edge in Toronto, uh, where we played to four people, and I've met all 500 of them. <laughs> I was there. Listen, the fact that you guys went through that, everybody thinks that all these stars are overnight successes. And of course, it's never that way. So the fact that you went two years kind of doing that starving period, good for you. Amazing. All right, let's go to the second one. This is from Rumblefish. Don't box me in. You and Stan Ridgeway. Tell us about that. Well, it was a film score. I got a call out of the blue from Francis Ford Coppola. I took the call and I uh, was invited down to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he was rehearsing and prepping this film Rumblefish with Matt Dillon, Diane Lane, Mickey O'Rourke, Larry Fishburne, Dennis Hopper, all these people who became huge stars. And they were just kids at the time. And he brought a bunch of different musicians down just to kind of throw ideas at the wall, see what stuck. And I quickly kneecapped all the competition and I stuck. And so I got the gig. I'd never made a film score before. I didn't know what I was doing. But Francis taught me what role music has in films to direct the emotions. So why did he call you, Stuart? Why do you think? I suspect because his son, uh, Roman, or Car his other son, Carmine, said, hey, dad, you got to get this guy. They were probably police fans. They wanted your autograph too. <laughs> I guess. Anyhow, we we bought we got down there and we were on the same wavelength. Uh, Francis is a very inspiring man, and if you're on his wavelength, he just gives you all the rope you need. And I didn't know what I was doing, but he taught me. He said, "See where he looks over at her. I need you to know that she loves him, but she's afraid for him. Can you do that?" And I, uh, yes, yes, sir. Yes, Francis, I can do that. So I go and I find the court and then I learned that it's not just to play pretty music while there, but it has a specific message. You know, he says, I love you, but he doesn't mean it, you know, because he's handsome. The lights are beautiful, but the audience needs to know that he doesn't mean it. That's where the music comes in. It, it speaks to your subconscious. It tells you how to feel about the information that you're getting. You know, your eyes give you information but music gives you the feeling. Well, it's a whole different experience. It's a whole different talent level to write that kind of background music in a film versus the kind of stuff that you guys did in The Police. Well, I would humbly submit uh, that what you correctly describe as background music, my hackles do not rise, even though I spent 20 years as a hired gun doing exactly that, background music. 
my hackles are not risen at all. Uh-oh. I would humbly submit that the film composer has the widest skill set of any form of musician because he has to. He has to do orchestra. He has to do he can, you know rock band, funk, science fiction, period, romance, comedy, drama, action. You know the, the film composer has to go everywhere and not only go where his instincts tell him, such as a rock star or a rock band or a songwriter who goes where their heart takes them. No, you got to work for the man. You got to go where the man tells you and find something over there that's very emotionally specific. So you very quickly learn all about music, how it works, what it does, how manipulative it is. And so that's why I say the humble, who's not even an artist, by the way, he's a craftsman. He serves the art of the director. But man, I was, I did that job for 20 years and man, I did learn some stuff. No, I'm sure you're right. Foremost amongst the things that I learned was orchestra. Well, what I was trying to say, although maybe I didn't say it correctly, is that it's a different talent. And as you just said, it's an extraordinary talent to be able to create those kinds of emotions for another medium, which is what you're doing. And uh, kudos to you that you were able to create such a career in that area. Let's go on to the last song that we have here from you. This is your version, your reimagined version of King of Pain from the Police Beyond Borders album. Tell us about that. Well, like I say, I learned orchestra. Then I started getting commissions from, you know, the Dallas Symphony, the Pittsburgh Symphony, the Royal Opera, and all these fancy orchestras to write music for music's sake, which is very different from film score. Then I was doing concerts and playing. Then I started to do concerts where I played medleys of my film music and so on. And I started dropping instrumental versions of obscure police songs that I wrote like Miss Grudenko and others in darkness. And they just had such an impact that the business suits, you know, the grownups around me saying, Stuart, if you want to really pack the house, play the hits. And I'm going, no, 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 no. And uh, then one day I said, well, maybe, why not? Because I had these deranged versions that I had done for the movie that I made, long story, about the police. And I had cut up all these songs into new versions. And so I orchestrated them. And I've been playing this show with three women on the mic and me banging drums in a big, bad orchestra. And then I made a record. It did very well. Number two in the classical crossover charts, three in the actual classical charts, which is pretty cool. But then I had another idea. My buddy with whom I won my last two Grammys last year, Ricky Cage said, try this. How about we make a world version of the same record? So I used the same backing tracks, the same orchestra, but now I've got every breath you take in Zulu. And, you know, this song King of Pain in, you know, a Hindi version of it. I've got songs in Urdu, Chinese, Armenian. Uh, It's the world version of all this stuff. 
Isn't that great? By the way, long introduction, but you'll 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 get there. Big payoff. Listen, I loved it. I I was listening to this stuff all day yesterday as I was preparing for this. But you mentioned the song of yours that was always a favorite of mine, and it was kind of off the beaten path for the police. And I'm talking about Miss Gridenko. What I found so interesting when I went back to take a look at that, you've got a video out there, and it's a James Bond film video. Did you know about that? James Bond. Well, somebody did make a movie, a short, called Miss Gridenko, and every word of the movie is a lyric from the song. No words spoken are not from the song. Miss Gridenko, are you safe? Are you safe, Miss Gridenko? I heard, you know, it's like... It's not a great movie, I can <laughs> confess, but still kind of cool. I don't know the movie well, you're talking about. Well, no, this is just, it's your song. It's the police version from Synchronicity of Miss Gridenko, but the video on YouTube is from Russia with Love. What do you know? Which was so interesting to see, okay? Anyway, we have been speaking here with the great Stuart Copeland. Stuart, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you and get your stories and the backgrounds and and your erudition. This has been a fun conversation. Thanks for listening. I thank you so much. And we're going to listen now to that song that started off the uh, episode. It's my version of Jimi Hendrix's Fire. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. And thanks for supporting the podcast by becoming a premium subscriber. Sign up at followyourdreampodcast.com slash premium. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Now listen. Fire